My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. And joining me as guest is Brad Silberling. Hello, Brad. Hello. Oh, it's so cool to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Let me tell you about Brad. For those of you who don't know him, and I think you you probably do, uh, Brad Silberling is the writer and director of the recently released film An Ordinary Man, starring Ben. Kingsley. Other writing credits include 10 Items or Less and Moonlight Mile. And Brad has directed no less than 29 movies and TV shows. Those include City of Angels, which still makes me cry. <laughs> it does. A series, a series of unfortunate events and Land of the Lost, as well as TV shows such as Brooklyn Bridge and YPD Blue and Jane the Virgin. He's also the executive producer of Jane the Virgin, as well as the reboot of Dynasty and the recent up-and-coming reboot of Charmed. Still dripping wet, exactly. That's right, it came right, right, right from, from the pilot, right? That's it. Oh, my Lord. Um, and also in the small world category, his kids, Bodie and Charlotte, also went to school with my kids, Ezra and Rita. That's so. exactly right. <laughs> At least they're off to a good start. Yeah, no kidding, no right. kidding. Did I, did I just see a prom picture? Or, you did. Oh, my Charlotte, God. Charlotte, my daughter, yeah. She looked Prom pretty. with her bow of... A year and a half, which in you know Hollywood years would be like a twenty-year marriage. I so it's know, pretty impressive. Wow! Yeah. And you're doing okay? Has I'm he been vetted? He has been vetted more than most folks in Washington, as we've learned in days past. Yeah, he's been heavily vetted. He's a great guy. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And I also had your lovely wife Amy Brenneman on the show two years ago. And what was so notable about her, in addition to her being just you know wildly talented and amazing, is that. I have never been so nervous with a guest in my entire life. Wow. I literally tripped over my words. It was <laughs> so bad. Oh. And I remember I had to call my mom and be like, oh my God, oh, Amy Brenneman. I was I, so nervous. She would love that she's that intimidating. She, she doesn't she get it at is, home. So She's she's <laughs> wicked cool. She's a, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. You're okay too. Just I'm letting okay. you know. because no, she's got the awesome column just like <laughs> checked. Well, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Such a busy day. Um, I'd love to jump into your latest film. Um, tell me about An Ordinary Man, sure. what it's about. I, I watched it, but tell everybody what it's about and also what inspired you to write it. Sure. Um, well, An Ordinary Man is definitely what we would call you know, a movie for grownups, harder and harder to find and harder to make these days yeah. in that it's a, it's a real duet. It's a two-hander. It's a drama sort of a psychological drama. Um, the distributors always love to call it a thriller, but uh, at its heart, it's a character drama. It is a story of a fugitive war criminal. This is set in Eastern Europe, actually set in Serbia. And the backdrop is the, the breakup of Yugoslavia. It's the, the Balkan Wars, which happened back in the 90s. And um, 
in the wake of those wars, there were, in each country, not just in Serbia, but there were fugitives uh, responsible for much of the carnage who managed with the protection uh, of loyalists and governments, honestly, to remain at large, but often hiding in very plain sight out of a sense of nationalism and ego. And, and so the story of the film is one of those. Uh, all we, we meet him as the general. We never hear his name beyond that. And he has clearly, his story opens, been moved like a chess piece, uh, you know, from couch to couch amongst a dwindling group of loyalists. He's not living the high hog at all. He's definitely in a pretty uh, meager existence, but is clearly such a pain in the ass <laughs> that they, uh, his story opens, his loyalists have found an apartment to put him in for potentially six months on his own. And uh, essentially for this man, who's a huge personality, again, as I say, a major pain in the ass, who's used to commanding troops and journalists and public attention, the idea of being put into a space alone is his own idea of hell. Um, he's put there and second morning into his new home, here's keys in the door and in walks a young woman dropping cleaning supplies and finds herself on the other end of his gun. And he comes to realize that she's evidently the maid of the prior tenant who clearly got broomed, an old woman who'd probably been in this apartment from the looks of it for many, many years. And essentially a man who craves an audience and craves a bit of human interaction. You could say he hires her, you could say he takes her hostage. Hard to kind of tell which, but the evolution of that relationship is the film. Um, and without giving away too many spoilers, what you discover is that a relationship which initially could go very wrong and one assumes it could become suddenly sexually exploitive or otherwise is revealed to be that of a, of a father who is trying to sort of vicariously have a relationship he never got to have with his own daughter, uh, who we will discover took her own life because of his actions in the war. So it's like somebody trying to have a relationship he hasn't earned, and uh, the film follows that path to its rather tough results. What inspired you to write this movie? It's so interesting. We get just blindsided by stories, and I think if your antenna are up, you're always sort of open to them, and you never know where you're going to discover them. I, so humble beginnings, I, I was waiting for, we, we have a home back in Massachusetts, and we're there in the summer and we're there as much of the, the holidays as we can be. And I was waiting for an old beat up car of mine to be delivered. I was retiring it out to, to Martha's Vineyard. And I was sitting in the Cape waiting for my car to be delivered one morning, day after Christmas. Um, gosh, this almost 10 years ago, 10 years ago now. And I was just reading the New York Times and it was a slow news day in the bottom corner of the front page. There was essentially a human interest story and it was about... Serbia, who has been desperate to join the EU, was about um, a number of loyalists of a fugitive war criminal who allowed themselves to be put on sworn testimony at The Hague so that they could show at least an effort that they were making to bring uh, him in because the EU was very clear that this country, like many others, would not be admitted unless they brought in their last war criminals. And these guys were unbelievably honest. I was dumbfounded reading this article, they were like, oh yeah, we can tell you exactly where he's been. And they sat and delineated this remarkable 
litany of, of, again, places that they had moved them, all right there in Belgrade, Serbia, its capital, all in plain sight. Um, they lied and said, we can't tell you where he is today. But otherwise, they were incredibly frank. And it was the banality of it and the, the sort of proportions of this man's ego that I was reading about. And, and the, again, this idea of him being... They, they said at one point that they did put him into his own apartment. In his case didn't want security detail. They literally gave him, they provided him with groceries, phone cards, and a housekeeper. It's like the bachelor's existence. And I, I was so struck by that, struck by what I, what I gleaned in terms of his social needs, like that he clearly needed, again, an audience. And of course, in my mind, I was like, well, who was that? Who was that housekeeper? Who was that maid? What was that relationship? How did, did he know her? Did he immediately assume she was reliable, that she was there with the right intention? So my, my storyteller brain kind of just took the proportions of that. I was very struck by it. And I just tore the article out. And I was in prep on a movie, so I couldn't even kind of put my attention back to it for almost, it was close to two years. But then I came back and I started reading up on a couple of these more uh, known figures in Belgrade. One was Ratko Mladic, who was the Serbian uh, field general who was responsible for the siege of Sarajevo and the, the, the massacre at the end of the war at Srebrenica. And his political partner, a guy named Rad, uh, Radovan Karadic, who also was hiding in plain sight in Belgrade. And I just started reading up on them. And of Mladic, I read that his daughter in her 20s, I think going to med school, had been hearing rumors for years about his behavior, finally read a, an account by a journalist that she, I think it was German, that she found credible, and she took her life. She killed herself with her father's military pistol. Wow. Which was so pointed and aggressive. And, and he, what I read, of course, um, A, didn't believe it was a suicide, completely could not take any sense of responsibility for it. And uh, also, again, clearly remained firm in his belief that he was a hero and that everything he had done, he'd done for the future of his country and was absolutely unrepentant, even in the face of his daughter's death. And so that's when I suddenly felt the yearning to, to reach in and tell a story. I had, I, I, I'd taken three films over the years to the Sarajevo Film Festival, which is an incredible festival. So I had seen the scars on that city's face and I, remember being quite angered at thinking that, that those responsible were still at large. And again, just showing my hand, I think I felt that there was a little bit of storyteller justice that I could bring to somebody who at that point was not, uh, Mladic was still at large, as was Karadic. And, but I thought this man clearly has to have an incredibly un, uh, unfinished relationship with that ghost that is his daughter. And if this young woman who comes into his sphere can potentially provide that for him. I want to have, I want to tease that out and then I want to torture him um, because again, he's unrepentant and if he can't find some humanity and an ability to take responsibility for what he's done, he won't have deserved this new relationship and the results will be tragic. Which I found stood in for sort of the youth of these countries. They, they have this, this shadow behind them and in many cases, they don't know what to do with that. And there is a growing nationalism in a lot of Eastern Europe, which 
is frightening to look at on the face. And you do see, wow, the youth themselves can get thrown right under the bus um, if they don't break free somehow from the old behaviors. So a bit of a, a microcosm in a way. And so I, I just started um, sketching out what would these exchanges be between a young woman who for good reason has to kind of sit on her own motivations. And again, I'm going to try not to give away too many spoilers, but there's quite a turn in the movie uh, in terms of an added component of her identity that she's not just this maid. There's another part of her. And I, I, you just turn your, your ear to listening. Like what, what would that brief moment look like for him before she's walked in the door? What would it look like when she has, and somebody who's used to loves interrogating and loves subjugating people, what would that look like with just this one young woman? And how would that transition into, again, him trying to almost learn the secrets of, of a young woman that he never got to learn from his own daughter? So I didn't know a lot about what the shape would be. I just wanted to start thinking about those exchanges and did. And it's odd. It was only after I finished the movie that I looked at it, I, was, I realized it's kind of like a perverted Christmas carol. In a way, it's like he's getting to visit all these sort of waypoints that he might have had with his daughter. Um, again, had he been able to kind of own up, had he not done what he'd done, and if he'd been able to own up to, to his actions. It's interesting, though, you're talking about, you know, what would those conversations look like? What, mm. You know, it is very dialogue-driven, yeah. and I think that you're answering that question that was in my head. It's, it's, there was a lot of ways that you probably could have told this story. Mm. You could have blown it out, right? Of course. But you kept it very intimate just between these two people yeah. where you're catching, you're catching these reveals in the dialogue. Yeah. So that was, that was intentional, two people talking. Yeah, I wanted to take what I thought was the truth of his existence, which is, it's a character who loves pushing the envelope. Clearly he loves, he believes he still belongs there in his city that he is, you know, again, a hero loves to push the envelope in terms of darting about in public and dancing around fate. Um, but the reality of his existence is he is definitely still a bit housebound. And so rather than blowing it out and having them just off constantly on adventures or dragging her along, it didn't seem honest to me, what felt honest was almost a moving conversation, much of which would happen there in the kind of boiler confines of that apartment. Some of which though would happen out and about um, to her obvious fear and discomfort. And then we, again, later in the film, understand why it's even more to her discomfort. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm, my wife at times calls me the, the king of oblique when I'm writing. I do love to try to entrust in the audience a sense of intelligence and and hope that they're going to be involved enough to want to kind of peel the onion back themselves too. So I, I try not to just hand everything over. And this was a story that was about this man trying to kind of peel the layers of who is this young woman? What's really going on with her? Where is she really coming from? Also because it, it also it keeps the focus on her and less on him. And her first questions come very late in the movie, mm -hmm. um, though they've probably been sitting there the whole time. And so, yeah, it was, it was to me, it was always going to live in those conversations and, and to a certain extent. I mean, there's really, you know, Peter Serafinowicz, who plays his minder, his driver, is really the only other actor in the movie, and he's got three scenes. 
So. They're pretty powerful. I'm not going to give anything away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, how do you get from that to Charmed and Dynasty and even Jane the Virgin? I mean, tonally, genre-wise, yeah, right? right? And that kind of goes with your whole career. I mean, there's dark and light and yeah. family and uh, independent. It's all over the place. Yeah. And, I, and I look at it and go, wow. That's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of selfish. I just call it pure artistic selfishness, which is what... It, writing is its own journey. Uh, making a movie is a marriage. You have to marry yourself to your uh, script, your subject, your actors, your post-production, all of it. And you better be, especially in a movie, more even than in a pilot, you got to be prepared for that monogamy and if I, I choose carefully but what's interesting is so many different uh, things do move me and they can be comedic they can be you know tragic they can be so I it's always a story it's a story in characters in particular if anything um, Scott Frank is a very very old friend of mine and I we always laugh about it's the characters first for us. And then sometimes we're like, ah, oh, damn, okay, story. Yeah, that's right. We got to <laughs> saddle with story needs. But it's really always the characters that get us up in the morning to write and to write those voices and the situations. Um, and I, yeah, if something grabs me, um, I mean, 10 items or less is just a simple little human comedy. Um, I am always struck by intimacy, though. It's something that was both pointed out to me and then I sat and thought about that. It's true, which is unexpected intimacy where characters are thrust together, often strangers, in a, a situation where truths are going to come out, probably truths that wouldn't come out in their own lives with families and otherwise. I'm very taken with because I love the idea that honest uh, identity and honest truths can can evolve organically in the, in the space of 90 to... 90 minutes to two hours without people just completely burying their souls just because the camera's on them. So I, I, I do 10 items is like that. Moonlight, Moonlight Mile, Mile is very much like that. And yeah. that Jake's character is, I mean, the poor guy, Joe Nast is the name of his character in that film. And <laughs> while we were making the film, Susan Sarandon, who is not an LA native, so she would keep herself busy in the weekends. And at one, one point she went to Color Me Mine on a weekend. <laughs> she came back with little cups for everybody that she'd painted on. And she, for Jake, she made him a cup that had basically most of his dialogue for the first mm, two-thirds of the movie, which was, uh, mm, <laughs> well. And it's a character who's sitting on his truth. Right. And who, because of story circumstances, is desperately fearful that his truth will show through and that it will crush everybody. Hmm. So, of course, the only person who could elicit it from him is Ellen Pompeo's character, who, again, is sort of a boundary buster, doesn't know him, but just has in this personality this ability to kind of bring it out of him. And it's exactly what he needs in this moment in the story. And it through that comes feeling and, and in the end love, but it's again that same root of of that intimacy, allowing for for that. Even weirdly, City of Angels too couldn't be more intimate. It's like initially this woman is literally being watched over, and her feelings and thoughts heard by somebody who doesn't know how to reach across and communicate that he's there. Um, so I'm probably always very really struck by that. I think, and so yeah, 
long answer to simply say, I, I just selfishly kind of want to do what I want to do. And I know the costs of committing to doing it. So I, when I was getting started, I, I felt like a little bit of a commitment phobe because I was like, man, I know how long these movies take to make and I don't want to just say, yeah, great. Um, and the fun thing with television pilots is that they're like microwave movies. They, they're movies you're literally building from the ground up, art and casting and music and all the things I love, but you're doing it on a, it's a three month wind sprint from usually from the time you all agree to get going until delivering the pilot, which is what I just did today. Um, so that allows for me again to say, oh, I love this tonal. I do love tonal type ropes. I love them when it was true with Jane, the Virgin, um, where you're dabbling in sort of fable but grounded characters in the midst of sort of really heightened circumstances story-wise. There's a huge commitment to a voice in, yeah. in Jane the Virgin, right? Yeah. We're going to double down on the telenovela kind of style exactly. and bring you along for the ride, Yeah, but make you completely relate to the Correct. characters Correct, because if you didn't, it would just be a bonbon and it would have lasted 13 episodes and that was it. And I said to Jenny when we talked about it, because I read her script and I knew, I'd met her on another show I was producing, Rain, and... I said to her, I think I know how to do this. I said, you know, it's got to, it's, it's, it's a fable, it's a fairy tale, but it's like a small case F because these characters have to be a utterly grounded, at least from where their behavior begins. And they have to be unaware of the telenovela. They're living these moments. That's a real obstacle in front of her, the accidental insemination. It actually happens. And we understand why, because we watched this poor obstetrician who, you know, is having a, a marriage breakdown. All these things have to be grounded and then the proportions will take over, but the characters aren't initially aware of them. So that's the kind of tonal dance I love. They're tricky uh, and you have to get audience buy-in, hopefully by earning it. It's even true of Dynasty. I mean, the ridiculous proportions of wealth and everything, but we knew that that family had to be as messed up or more than yours. And you had to recognize those family feuds and the 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 misunderstandings and the jealousies and all of that. And if that was somehow rooted, you know, I mean, down to the, it was hysterical in the pilot. I said to the uh, writing showrunner, Sally said, this family needs a dog. And I know exactly what the dog is. Cause when Fallon comes home the first time, all she wants to do is see the dog. <sighs> That's going to be the safe place for her. And so we put a dog in the pilot that also, I have a pet peeve and it kind of goes back to what William Goldman said and, his first book there, Adventures in the Screen Trade, where he was writing about George Roy Hill, the great director who did a number of his films. And Hill would just lambaste him. He'd be like, oh my God, you can't write that slug line that says the sun is rising and it's the most perfect sunrise ever seen in the history of you. He's like, how am I supposed to shoot that? How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> and that happens often in television scripts where if it's network television, it says, and they're having sex and it's the hottest thing ever. No, 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 no. And you're like, come on, guys. How am I going to do that? It's, this is not cable and it's not streaming. And so I re that was the other half of the motivation for having the dog was like, I'm going to start to see this incredibly hot session happening with Grant Show and his co-star, but I'm going to cut to the dog who's there watching it and bored. <laughs> and that's going to get me out of this circumstance, but tell me everything about the domesticity of it. So, so you solved your pet peeve with a pet. With a pet, always do it. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, again... I can exercise my interest in unexpected tonal tightrope dances um, in pilots and do so. Again, I have to feel like I know a way in that 
maybe someone else doesn't and then I can contribute. Um, even pilots, they're hard. And so if I, I'd rather just stay home and read if, if I don't think I can really do something with it. And just having just come off of the Charmed pilot, yeah. you came in and to me, you were bubbling a little bit. You said that there's a feminist take here. We Yeah, so the studio, CBS Studios, um, approached Jenny Ehrman, who, again, my partner on Jane, and I, uh, it's almost two years ago, and said, okay, this is going to come as a surprise, but the single most valuable asset in our library is actually Charmed. It's the show that sold the deepest and furthest around the world. It It's our, it's our kind of crown jewel, and we both were a bit surprised, but one never knows. And uh, they said, if you guys can find your way into it and apply your voices, we'd be pretty excited about that, see what you think. And so that led to an initial year of sort of exploring. Interestingly, we knew Jenny was like, God, that great balance of what is a witch and a witch by any other name is just an empowered woman. Mm-hmm. That That sort of led to the possibility of it being, um, which initially it was going to be in the period, it was going to be basically like 69 or 70. It was going to be sort of this birth of an ERA moment. It was going to have all of that as backdrop and three young women who do discover that they're witches, but almost are afraid to have those identities trip up the progress of, of real progress for women. And so what if you were the thing that people accuse you of? Accuse you of being Mm -hmm. exactly. And, so, um, and Jenny was buried uh, with Jane, and uh, there were two writers, uh, Jessica O'Toole and Amy Reardon, who were senior writers on the Jane staff, and she said, go off and see what you can tackle here, and we'll all agree on a story. And, and they, they made strides, but we, at the time that pilots are greenlit, we were all in agreement that we weren't there yet, and which was disappointing to the studio and the network, who almost kind of said, go make it anyway. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. Huh. So, cause they were so excited to, tr- to finally have it. So we did stand down. Of course, she went off to finish the Jane season. I headed over and, and did dynasty and was then finishing my movie. And in the interim, many things happened this year, of course, in the world, you know, um, especially in October, you know, given the Harvey Weinstein moment and others, we realized that there's no reason to set it back in another moment, that this story is now. And that's when the story kind of came into focus. And, but again, exactly that, what if you are, uh, you know, uh, what, what everyone accuses you of being. In this case, we have three young women, two of whom are sisters who've grown up together. There's a third who arrives and none of them have known of each other until this moment, top of the script. But they embrace it and they realize, no, we actually, w- w- this is our identity. And we will, you know, if need be, uh, take advantage of that and put it into play in dealing with harassment on campus and in dealing with, so not that they're vigilantes, but that they're rooting for what's beneath this male behavior, what's beneath this harassment. And so it's, again, it's a, it's a playful pilot, but it digs in, in, in interesting ways and, uh, is set on a campus. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the piece that we just finished. You know, I, I teach a TV class and 
I'm always stressing that a pilot is different from any other episode you're ever mm. going to do because it also needs to set up. Yeah. So there's the setup, but there's also a, a mini episode. You need to see what the show Correct. is. Um, do you have a particular way in for, for creating your pilots? I think what you just said is exactly it, which is, it's funny, there was a period, and it's still sort of in vogue, where you would hear from uh, often networks that, oh, we we no longer want a premise pilot. We don't want a, an origin story. We want to just get the audience and throw them right in. So their question often when people are pitching shows is, What's, what's an episode look like? What does an average episode look like? Which you do need to be able to answer because otherwise you're just making a movie. You're making an exciting 60-minute movie that can't be sustained. So it's a smart question. But I believe everybody wants an understanding of why now. Why is the story beginning now? Uh, when I did the pilot for Rain, which was um, Mary Queen of Scots, basically at age 15, coming to French court to fulfill this engagement uh, with, Francis, the young Dauphin, um, it, the story, the script originally began with, which was true historically, Mary uh, away in convent. She was at a convent. And then there was a moment when she needed to be secreted away from, from there. Um, and the pilot began with her at convent, somebody attempting to poison her. And everyone realizing now is the moment we have to secret her away and get her to French court. And of course, as happens with every film or television pilot, there's budget concerns and there's time. And at the time, the network said, well, it's also a very television uh, obstacle you run into. They said, well, we're never going to see these characters again or this location. Why, do we, why are we going to invest in that? And we should just have her arriving at court. And I said to them, I think I'm the wrong man for the job then because if, if you're going to open a pilot with a young woman in a beautiful gown coming out of a horse-drawn carriage, waving, I, why do I care? Everything's mm -hmm. going great. If I see that somebody just attempted to essentially execute her, to, to poison her, that she's at risk, uh, that I meet her as a bit of a tomboy and a very independent spirit, I, I can do that in three minutes. But if I don't have that, then it's then it's just a fairy tale and I'm not interested. And... To their credit, they said, okay. And it was vital. It was an origin story. It was a true origin story. But then the rest of the pilot, yes, you're meeting new characters, but it did behave like the other episodes. So um, I think you can do so economically. And economy is, to me, the most exciting part of writing. It's like, how can I, again, communicate the most with the least? Uh, it's just a personal exercise. I love it in dialogue. I love it in lack of dialogue. I love... Everybody remembering it's a it's a an audiovisual medium. So, and I started out as a kid with a Super 8 camera that had no sound head. So my first movies were all silent movies, and and I needed to still establish character and obstacles, and and so I still think that way. I wonder if that would be a good exercise for for everybody who's just starting as make a silent movie. The, you know, the when I was at UCLA, I was there for the graduate school, um, and I was in the production program. But thankfully, all the production students had to take screenwriting, but I remember saying to the screenwriting instructors, I don't understand why dedicated screenwriting students in the program aren't required to go make what was then called a Project One, which was a silent 10-minute Super 8 film, because it would be an eye-opener to everybody. And I, th I still think it's the most incredible uh, lesson and encourage everybody 
to do so, even people who are not uh, burgeoning uh, writers but are, are trying to become directors. It's like turn the sound down and try to tell your story. Uh, for directing, okay? So, so, of course, we have a lot of writers who listen to this show, but mm. we also have a lot of writer-directors who mm. listen. So if you're given something that uh, you haven't written and you need to tell the story, what is the first thing that you do when you're looking at that piece of material? If I'm looking at a piece From of someone From a director's else's, point of view, yeah. Well, again, I, I do put it through my own, my own storytelling sieve in a way, which is, are, are there elements of a character I don't understand? Is there, are there elements of a story either I don't understand or I think are, are being over-explained? Um, is the world that this is taking place in clear to me and evident? Um, and I, I, I get very excited thinking about those elements. Again, uh, when it comes to dialogue and when it comes to characters over-explaining themselves, I tends to be, a, I'm allergic to it. And um, I mean, some of my greatest experience, I, when I got out of graduate school, I went under contract Universal and they covered everything. They covered if I was going to write or direct or produce or anything. But it was a very quiet time in television at, at Universal at that point. Um, so while I was writing my first screenplays under my contract, I got an opportunity to direct. Stephen Bochco was uh, then ensconced at 20th Century Fox. He was doing all of his shows. And he was kind enough. He'd seen my uh, graduate thesis film. And, you know, I always say it's the guys who can take the big swings because they're in a privileged position. It was true of him, Steven Spielberg, and my past. And... Um, so he brought me on and I directed, gosh, episodes of almost everything he had going on in the air at that point over the course of about two and a half years. And I remember, because Stephen didn't care about directing per se. He liked when things were well-directed, but that was not his interest. He loved the page. He loved the written word. And I remember a scene. I did two episodes of the first 10 of NYPD Blue. Um, and there was a very important final scene, the first episode I did, where David Caruso's character who's a detective, he's involved with a uniform cop, which is Amy Brenneman. Uh, her character was a beat cop named LaCalce who had crossed the line and done some bad things and whacked some mob guys. And they've, they've had a, 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 a bit of a split earlier in the episode, and he comes back to knock on her door. And it's supposed to be this kind of rapprochement moment. And I remember there were just too many words. And I... I and to me, the idea that he made the effort because he was really upset and didn't know what to do with the relationship, the fact that he came and knocked on her door was going to be the biggest olive branch. And that whatever negotiation had to happen in the relationship was going to happen right then and there between the two of them. And I, so I said to him, I don't need all this dialogue. I think we're going to tell a better scene if we do it without the dialogue. And he blinked and he looked at me and I said, I know you're Mr. Television. He still <laughs> would call himself that. <laughs> Kiddingly, but no. God bless him. And uh, I said, just, I think, I swear to you, I think I can tell this all with two words. Because he says, hey, and she says, hey. And that was scripted. And then the scene went on. And I said, that's all I need. Trust me, I can, we, we'll see the whole thing. We'll see him having dared to be there. We'll see her being surprised that he's dared. We'll see him waiting for some acceptance. We'll see her acceptance. We'll see his, his relief. It's behavior. It's acting. And um, 
so he was awesome because he looked at me and he stuck his finger in my face, Bochco, and said, well, those, those better be two weighty haze. <laughs> so that was forever called the weighty haze. <laughs> hey, hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> and I, and that to me, when I sit and look at a script, I do challenge all the aspects for myself as a director. I just challenge what's, what's the most interesting and honest behavior. What's the economy that comes with that? Conversely, if I don't understand a leap that's been made, I'll say, I don't get that. We either have to create a piece of behavior or there is some dialogue that we thought could have happened off camera, but I think needs to be on camera. I don't understand that. Um, so all of those things kind of come into play. But again, I have to just be peaked. I, I can read a, a pilot script or a film script and say, well, yeah, I'll enjoy seeing that someday. I don't need to make it. Mm. It's got to be something that I really feel like, again, excites me to bring to life and that I think I have a secret about. This has been such good information. I could just sit here and just ask you more and more and more. <laughs> I'm scared scared to do no, it. No. Um, but I guess, I guess the one thing we haven't talked about are sort of those those bigger movies, right? Yeah. Because we've got the intimacy yeah. of, of the movie that you just made sure. and the movies that you like to write. Then we've got, you know, TV. Again, there's an intimacy there. And yeah. then we've got some big movies. Yeah. Um, so what do you do with that? You know, because your instincts are, you, yeah. you, love the, you love this intimacy, you love the weighty hay, yeah. right? Yeah. That's not going to work. In, in, but in I big would, franchise movies. I would argue that it can. I mean, that's what's interesting is I, if you actually sit and break down the, the larger, I call them design movies, because mm-hmm. usually you're world creating in those movies, whether it's a world that exists here, but is sort of a, an, alter, an alternate version of our world, like in Lemony Snicket or even in City of Angels, which is, it's a world beneath the world that we don't know is there or that, that at least the story posits is there. Same instincts come into play. I, I uh, in terms, what I'm still most interested in is the heart of those relationships and the intimacies there. In the case of Lemony Snicket, it's the bonds between these kids who are up against everything. The adults are just bozos in Daniel Handler's world. They are, they're, they're, the adults do not look out after kids. And so I knew that I had to invest in and have the audience really care about and believe the strengths and mutual respect of these siblings together um, and their weaknesses. And even Jim Carrey's character as Count Olaf, when Jim and I met, um, I just said to him, the first thing I said to him about the movie and the script, I said, "I I just think this is an actor who's had too much time off. It's a guy who's desperate to get his next work. And in this case, yeah, if he has to kill a few people and basically rob the bank so that then he can fund his own Titanic, at least he'll be able to star in Titanic. <laughs> so it, I said, it's almost like a, an exaggerated version of, a, of an actor out of work. And if we can work from that premise, I get this guy and I will be able to invest in. He loved that. And, sure. And, 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 and that was really what Olaf was. If anything, I mean, in our... Our, um, you know, all of our DVD extras, the material that didn't make it the movie. Oh my God, we just went nuts because I, I have acting classes that Olaf is doing with his troupe, and they're all just <laughs> awful. The, 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 it's the worst group of, of theatrical actors you've ever seen. 
But we got really excited about it because, again, we wanted to see they are actually really passionate. They're horrible, but they're really passionate about what they do. So I can understand and not forgive, you know, all of their trespasses, but I'll understand them. So it helps. So even if suddenly I'm building large sets and you're always still coming from character and I need to understand why the particular room that the kids are going to be thrown in is what it is. I need to understand why the mansion's going to be what it is. Um, all of that still comes from the same set of instincts. It's just the, the, the canvas is bigger. And that is great fun because it just means, oh, okay, if, if we're essentially, if it's metaphor, the metaphor is getting exploded. The conceit's getting bigger. But um, I, don't, I, I, I don't find myself, you have to switch gears in terms of, <laughs> responsibility because you your art department is suddenly hundreds of people in set construction and your budget is gigantic and you have to be if anything more responsible and really believe you need the sequences that you need if i'm reaching out and saying this is going to cost 20 million dollars but it's important you better be able to explain to a group of 10 people around a corporate table why that's the case and um it always has to come for me from the same instinct so just again it's like a bigger golf club but but the swing is the same. Could you come do this podcast every week? <laughs> I would like that. Just, you know, I'm just saying, I know you're not really busy. Just, No, oh it's so God. exciting. You know what I'm about to get to do is I, I find this rhythm each year, May and June and July for me, it's just maybe because of the way things work, if I'm, especially if I'm doing a pilot, that's my writing time, more so than other times of the year, depending on the year. So I'm about to head into that. And what's so funny, my friends who are dedicated screenwriters professionally often lead a relatively uh, solo existence. And mm -hmm. many of them at times are kind of tired of that or sort of lament that. When I finish having 300 people in my face, nothing is more exciting to me than the solitude of screenwriting. It's my joy. So that's why I, it's, it's part of what I do, but it always feels like I'm getting away with something when I get to sit down and start writing again. What, what is your writing day like? Do you wake up and commit to several hours? Do you do a little every day? I'm, again, my wife, I'm, I'm definitely somebody who is a bit, I, I'm super committed, can be kind of compulsive uh, in terms of like, when I'm excited about something, I just go there, I'm a border collie. So, no, I, um, without being overly uh, schematic, I, if the kids are still in school, I have two school-aged children, drop them off. Um, and I'm usually at, I'm a definitely a morning and a daytime writer. Sometimes I'll write at night if I'm really kind of, especially toward the end of the screenplay where I just can't stop. But I'm not like the night owl who like, you know, lights up a Chesterfield at midnight and starts writing. I get up, I'll, I'll take the kids to school, and then usually I'm able to be in front of the, the keyboard by 9.15 and tend to work till uh, 4, 3.30 or 4 always have that protein crash right in the middle of it, which is why, oh, I should stop and eat, but I can't. And then it's 2.30 and you're like really going, oh my God, my blood sugar's going. It happens every day. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do. And I write, um, I kind of tease myself into waiting to start writing pages. I will, when I was starting out, I wrote, you know, insanely detailed 35-page outlines. I mean, it was everything but the dialogue. Mm. And the, including some of the dialogue. And over time, it's now, I write a pretty terse, it's funny, they just tend to end up at seven pages. I'll write a seven-page, single-spaced, kind of bullet point 
call it an outline, I guess. Um, and, but getting there is a process of just trying to crack my brain open in terms of, I, I keep journals, I, I write on the keyboard, it's notes and dreams of, again, a monologue from one of the characters, uh, uh, a piece of clothing, a visual that I know somehow needs to live in the story. I call them the strays. I just sit and try to bring the strays up and get excited. More, but I try to hold off on outlining until such point as I'm like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I, I feel like there's a shape. I feel like there's a shape. Now I'm gonna okay. Now I'm gonna start to do that, and I, I'll sit and and it's just for me like film editing where I can sit and put together that outline, read through those bullet points and go up, oh, we go, I dropped a scene where, where I, there's a transition missing here. I don't understand how I got from here to there. Likewise, you, I can sit and read that and go, yep, I told that story three times, don't need that. And um, But they're very, I say terse because I want to give myself something to discover on the writing day. Mm-hmm. I just know in the sequence this has to get accomplished. Um, and so the, the bullet point may only be one line or maybe three lines or maybe a, a snippet of dialogue that I just don't want to forget. And I wait and I wait. And then finally there's that day where it's like, okay, I got to start. And then, um, and then so because of that, the, the actual draft writing process for me is pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty – my wife writes as well now. She's an actor, but she writes, and she's always cursing at me <sighs> because I, when I get into it, I get into it. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm writing it. Then I slip a script to her, and she's like, "Stop." <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's my. That do you tends do you to, read her stuff? Yeah, when she's kind enough to, I'll I'll hear I'll hear her say, "Oh yeah, I slipped so and so my." I'm like, "What are you talking about? I didn't I, I didn't see that." But that's <laughs> that's that's the nature of our marriage. She'll she'll commit to. She's doing a, a she's beginning a series a, a limited series that she'll start shooting this summer. And I remember when she'd like made the deal and it was like, I'm like, Hey, any chance I can read it? I'm, you know, I'm not going to see you for a little bit. I'd love to know what you're doing. <laughs> so we're definitely independent and interdependent in that way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and Welcome. energy today. This has been wonderful advice. Good. And we'll be seeing Brad every week here <laughs> on, on the page because I'm not letting him leave, but uh, we should, we should, at least point people towards seeing an ordinary man. Sure, yeah, Where yeah, can yeah. they see it these yeah, days? Yeah, now uh, we've we've had our theatrical run, but we are alive and uh, would love people to see. It's uh, basically uh, on VOD and high-def VOD, so iTunes, uh, your cable provider, any of the places that you can basically do your, um, your on-demand viewing, uh, the DirecTV, all of those good providers. But iTunes is a pretty dependable place. And as far as TV goes, what would you like people to, to make sure that they, they watch right Well, I, I, Jane the Virgin holds such a special place in my heart. Um, is that, I, I keep saying it's the happiest cast in television. Started that way, continues. We're heading into season five. And um, I was uh, the one who didn't get the memo that we were keeping a secret, that season five is the is the conclusion, the concluding season, mm-hmm. but it is. And Jenny's so happy that I spelled it. I spelled it in an interview a couple of weeks ago because she has, an, there's an architecture that has existed from the beginning. And often you'll hear people after the fact reverse engineer and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We always knew where we were going. She's known from day one. Yeah. And so the network is calling it the beginning of the end of the story, which is a lovely way to put it, but it, 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 um, 
And we ended season four week ago, Friday night, with a huge, shocking kind of twist because, of course, it's a telenovela. Uh, but those all four seasons, including this last season, uh, Netflix, as of, uh, I think, tonight, four, season four is up. Um, and what I've done, I did the pilot, and what I try to do each year is come in and do at least, I usually try to come and do the season opener, just kind of kick everyone in the ass a little bit and make sure, you know, everyone hasn't strayed too far from character or the crew is sort of up to up to speed. And, um, and then the occasional year I'll jump in. We did a time leap. Jane lost her husband, Michael, in season three, and we did an interesting kind of time leap forward so that we could honor her grieving process but also not have the show have to kind of stop mm-hmm. uh, short because of that. And so we did a, a, a real time leap episode and Jenny called me and said, can you please do it? It's kind of like doing the pilot again. And I said, absolutely. So last season I did a couple. And um, So if anybody has some good binge time, it's just such a delightful, beautifully written and performed show. It is. It definitely uh, is. Well, thank you so much. Welcome. I want to remind everybody to go to onthepage.tv to check out the in-person classes here and the recorded classes. If you go online, you'll see those. Um, also, um, any uh, some back episodes of the podcast that you might have missed, you can catch that as well. Um, I am signing people up right now for Sunday, May 6th for the in-person all-day TV class here from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Carol Kirshner is the guest speaker. She'll be talking about the business of it, and I'll be walking you through the series pitch and also the structure of TV, in which you can see as an example, this is what I show as an example, um, the act breaks only of the pilot episode of Jane the Virgin in, in order to show people how act breaks alone tell an amazing story. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Come there, you can see what we're talking about. Okay, Sunday, May 6th. I want to thank again Brad Silverling for taking time out of his very, very busy life. I appreciate it. Oh, this is, this has been the most relaxing part of my day. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> now you get to go home and see your kids. There you go. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, and thanks to all of you for listening. Have a good writing week. <laughs>